It'd be helpful to have Mark chapter 5 out in front of you. And what we're going to be doing this morning, we're continuing our teaching gospel. Uh, there are uh, four or five little accounts here that I'm going to group together. Uh, so the calming of the storm, which we read last week, that comes at the end of chapter 4. The healing of the demon-possessed man. And then uh, either the two accounts or the one account of the dead girl and the sick woman. They all fit together. And the reason I think they fit together is partly from what I mentioned last week. Mark is showing us here a, a new kind of miracle that Jesus is performing. He's calming the storm, showing his power. He's uh, driving out demons, not just one demon, but a whole legion of demons who no one else could touch. He is uh, healing the woman, not by having spoken to her or even knowing what was going on, but by the woman just coming and touching him, and she is healed. And then he's raising the girl from the dead. These miracles are a step on from the other things that we've seen Jesus do, even in Mark's Gospel so far. And Mark is showing just who Jesus is. He's not just an ordinary man. He's not just a prophet with authority. He is the Son of God. And that's what we were thinking about last week. But Mark goes further in tying these four little accounts together by his use of fear. And you might have noticed, uh, as we read through, uh, fear cropping up frequently. Uh, in, in this chapter. Uh, if you include the, the calming of the storm from the end of chapter 4, you can count at least five times where the word fear is mentioned. But I think there's at least seven or eight times where people are fearful, at least, and that is strongly implied within the text. And so that, just before we, we begin unpacking what this fear means and how it helps us interpret, there is a question there about what's going on here with this account. Was the fear genuinely there in each of these situations? Or is Mark just adding it in for the purpose of telling a good story? Uh, are, we written, are we reading a, a, a well-written um, story, um, a, a fable, or are we reading historical accounts? So often you'll hear Christians, apologists, preachers talk about the Gospels as historical accounts, biographies of Jesus. Well, can they be trusted if we've got devices like this that Mark is including, where he, where he seems to be inserting uh, this issue of fear uh, into, the, into the stories? Well, what I would question is, is it impossible to, to have both? Is, is Mark really making these stories up, or actually is he telling them in a way that he is, is editing the useful and relevant information? Think about any other biography that you might read. Biography of a footballer, for example. A footballer plays many, many football matches, and each of those football matches that he plays contributes to his overall life story. But when you read the biography, you're not going to read about every single match and every single substitution and every single pass and every single goal that he scores. You're going to read about the most significant points. The writer is going to spend more time perhaps on his first match for his professional club, or his most impressive goal, or his worst foul, or whatever else it might be in order that as you look at these significant events, you get a very full and clear picture of the man as a whole. You don't need to look equally at all the details of his life. And in a similar way, I think what Mark is doing is he's not making these stories up, he's, he's editing them for us. He's selecting appropriate accounts in the life of Jesus and drawing them together. And so I think, for example, there's probably a bit of a gap in the chronology here. There's probably a gap at verse 21 of chapter 5. I think Jesus calms the storm, lands on the beach, heals the man. But then when he travels back across the lake, there's, there's probably a gap, maybe even of a few days, 
before the woman and the girl uh, approach Jesus and, and he does what he does with them. Now that doesn't make Mark's account untruthful. It means Mark has chosen to group these things together in order to show us more clearly who Jesus is. And I think Mark's purpose in this little section, and especially by using this idea of fear and drawing out how fear is the response of so many people that Jesus meets, right fear and wrong fear, we're going to see. I think Mark wants to show us that once you learn to fear Jesus, there is nothing else to fear. Once you learn to fear Jesus, there is nothing else to fear. Fear is such a powerful emotion, isn't it? You know what it is to fear. You know that fear of being lost, perhaps, as a child for the first time. You know that fear of losing your children for the first time, turning round and they were there and now they've gone. Thankfully, they're only in the next aisle of the supermarket or wherever else it might be. But that, you feel that fear rising up within you. You feel the fear in your first day at a new job, your first day at school. You feel the fear as you go to the doctors and you await his diagnosis. You feel the fear as you wait for your loved ones to die as you watch them die. And you fear what will happen next, what will happen to them, what will happen to me, what will come once this person is gone. Fear is such a powerful emotion, and I think Mark is drawing on that fear to see very clearly who Jesus is and what it means to trust him, and also just how powerful this Jesus is to be able to overcome every other instance of fear that you or I might face. Once you learn to fear Jesus, there is nothing else to fear. I'm going to take that statement in two halves. Once you learn to fear Jesus... What do we mean by that? What is it to fear Jesus? Um, um, come on, isn't Jesus the man of compassion, uh, the, the gentle saviour, meek and mild? Do we really need to fear him? I think Mark would want to show us, yes, that there is a sense in which we ought to fear him. Now, Mark is not going to give us a very detailed and clear explanation of what the fear of Jesus looks like, because it's not a new idea to Mark. Mark is leaning back on the tradition of the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament where Jews were instructed regularly to fear the Lord. Um, you, you might know, for example, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True religion is fearing the Lord. Uh, the fear of the Lord comes up throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophets. It's when people don't fear the Lord that they're going wrong in the Old Testament. And the right way to love and honour God is to fear him. And so Mark is leaning back on this very familiar idea, fear of the Lord, and he's applying it not just to the Father in heaven, but to the man, Jesus Christ, who is here with us. And he's saying Jesus is the one, Jesus is the Lord that we ought to fear. So we don't get detailed instructions of how we fear him. But if we look at these accounts and we see how people respond with fear, we can start to get a sense of the right way we ought to fear Jesus. I'm going to start at the end of chapter 4 then with the calming of the storm. You see very clearly here a wrong fear that is presented. Verse uh, 40. Jesus says to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They're afraid of the storm. They're afraid of the waves. They're afraid of, of dying, basically. Don't you care if we drown? That was their challenge to Jesus. And you can tell Mark is showing us this is wrong fear. 
And you can tell Jesus is saying, this is wrong fear, because Jesus is rebuking his disciples. Uh, Where is your faith? You ought to have faith. Actually, in the Greek, it's it's a bit more clear. The word that uh, Jesus uses when he talks about that fear is like cowardice. Why are you, why are you such cowards? It's clear that whatever fear is prompting them to fear in that moment is the wrong type of fear. But then there is a right type of fear that comes up in this account. Verse 41, they were terrified. And they ask, who is this man? Now that is the right type of fear to have of Jesus. Or at least it's, it's approaching the right type of fear. You can tell it's the right type of fear because it's the type of fear where the other time in the Bible, when a storm was stilled instantly, it was the right type of fear that happened then. You refer back to Jonah. And in the story of Jonah, you see Jonah asleep in the stern with his head on the cushion in the boat. The storm's raging. The, soldier, uh, the sailors worried that they're going to drown. And when Jonah is thrown into the sea, the storm is stilled instantly. And the sailors' honourable response is to greatly fear the Lord God. And in a similar way, you've got the disciples in the boat, Jesus asleep with his head on the cushion, and Jesus gets up and the storm is stilled instantly, and the response is, they fear. Same word, they fear the Lord, they fear Jesus. And they ask, who is this man? And as we were thinking last week, that's the exact question that Mark wants you to ask. Who is this man, Jesus? Just who is it? Is he just a prophet or is he something more? And this right fear then, that the disciples have at the end of that little account, is the right fear that begins to realise just who Jesus is. He is, yes, he's like us, but he's so unlike us. He's so much more powerful. He is absolutely in control. He's not just influencing the world. He's not just influencing what happens. He doesn't just intervene at certain moments. He's got absolute control. And when he says the wind and the waves, they stop. And they're only raging because he's allowed them to rage in the first place. He is absolutely in control of all things. That's who Jesus is. And when you realize more of what the New Testament tells us about who Jesus is, you realize in a right way that Jesus is the one who holds our entire life in his hands. He sustains creation actively. He's upholding it. Why did the sun rise this morning? Well, because it always does. But why does it always? Because Jesus sustains the creation that he has made. He holds it up. He keeps it turning. Why are you alive today? Why are you breathing? Have you ever laid in bed and listened to your own heartbeat and wondered, I wonder if I can slow it down or speed it up. I wonder if I can make it stop. I wonder if I could make it start again if it did stop. You can't. You can't do those things, not by just thinking about it, not by trying to control it. But Jesus does control your very existence. He has your life and death, your existence in the palm of his hand. And you are only here this morning because he allows it. To rightly fear Jesus is to realize this truth about him. He is in absolute control. He's not just influencing my life. He has absolute control over all that I am and all that I do, all the, all the, all the things that I see, all the, all the people I interact with. He is in absolute control. And to realize this truth is to begin to fear him rightly. 
The Bible says that when you get this sense of your smallness and God's greatness, your weakness in the power of God's great and mighty hand, when you grasp that truth, you've taken the first step towards real wisdom. When you grasp that truth, you're opening yourself up to be truly thankful for things. Because you know that it's not from you, it's it's come from another place. When you grasp that truth, it is an encouragement into real obedience. It is is a motivator for real humility. There is every good thing that comes from just realizing how small you are and how great God is who holds your life in his hand. And Mark is showing us Jesus is the one who holds your life in his hand in that way. Fear him for that. And then it goes on into chapter 5. There's a fear implied right at the start of the section when this man, or perhaps two men, if, two men, if you, if you read Matthew's account as well, uh, two men come charging down the beach, uh, filled with demonic spirits, so powerful, so strong, that the people of the area were not able to control them. Matthew tells us nobody even went near that way. You can imagine the herders on the hillside looking and thinking, oh, I'm not certain that boat should be stopping there. There's going to be trouble here. And you can see these crazy men charging down the beach, shouting at the top of their voices towards Jesus. And Mark doesn't describe, he doesn't use the word fear in those opening verses. But you can certainly picture that if you were in that situation, if you were one of the disciples by Jesus, perhaps fear would be rising in you. But interestingly, when Mark does talk to us about fear, it's not the disciples who are fearing, but it's the demons. Again, he doesn't actually use the word fear. But look at the responses of the demons. When Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran, he fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. The demons are afraid of Jesus. They're afraid of being tortured by him, by, afraid of being punished by him. There is an insight here into that day of final judgment that we were talking about earlier, thinking about the flower and and the the verse on the screen. What will it be like? It will be a day of torture for the demons. When Jesus has been driving out the demons in, in the rest of Mark's Gospel, he's not only been sending them away, but he's been taking that first act of judgment against them. And here at the response of the demons, you can see that that perishing that the Bible talks about He's not just disappearing in a, in a, in a puff of smoke and uh, gone forever. But it is being submitted to the punishment of the Almighty God. His anger at our sin. The demons, at least here, expect punishment. Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, as he is called, yes, he has authority to forgive, Mark has shown us, but he also is in the position of judge. The demons fear him. There's another group in this section who fear him. And that's the people in the countryside. They, their fear of Jesus contrasts with the demonic fear. The demons fear Jesus because of his position and of authority. His ability and position to judge. But the people fear Jesus for totally unrelated reasons. Presumably they, they see Jesus uh, and, and what's happened to the pigs. And they say, we don't want this guy in here. Certainly he's powerful. But presumably they reason that if he's got the power to drive out the wickedness of the, the demons within this man, he himself must be wicked. And certainly he must be wicked if he's sent all our pigs into the water. 
And so they, they fear Jesus. It's a wrong type of fear. Because rather than accepting Jesus, rather than submitting to Jesus, they drive Jesus away. Or at least ask him politely to leave. There's a wrong fear here again. But then there's a right fear as well. Again, Mark is not talking about the fear of uh, the man. But I think in verse 18, 19 and 20, you see a right fear. You see a fear from the man who has been healed. This fear of the Lord, this fear of Jesus that Mark is trying to get across. Now, why do I call it fear? How would you describe it the first time you read it? I mean, you read it through, it looks more like devotion. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. He's so thankful for the way Jesus has worked in his life. He wants to stay with Jesus. Is that fear? I would say, yes, it is. It's, It's the right type of fear. It's the right way of fearing Jesus. It's recognizing this Jesus has all power. He has got my life in his hands. He has seen that, that man. He has seen that just as clearly as anybody else on that beach or anybody else on that cliff. He has seen the power of Jesus. He has experienced the authority of Jesus to judge. And recognizing that, the man realizes the right response of me to this man is not just to be thankful and go on my merry way as I wish. It's certainly not to drive him away because I ought to be terrified of him. But it's to fear him in the right way. And that right fear now looks like devotion, thankfulness, submission. Saying, Jesus, please let me go with you. Please let me be one of your people. Jesus, I know that you have all power, all authority. That you will be the judge of everyone, not just those demons that were in me, but you will one day judge me. And these other men on the beach and everyone. And yet I'm so glad that you are the one with that authority to judge. I would not rather it be anybody else. Because I don't consider it an evil power that's at work within you that's allowed me to be freed. I consider it your goodness. The strength of your goodness has overcome the wickedness that was in me. There is no one else I would rather be in that position. Jesus, I submit to you. And so the right fear of Jesus doesn't look like terror. It looks like humility. It looks like submission. It looks like thankfulness. Recognizing he has my life in his hands. And the only right response for me is to submit to him and to follow him. And so the man begs to go with him. Right fear recognizes that Jesus has absolute power over not just your destiny here on earth, but your eternal destiny. And that kind of fear is what you might otherwise call real faith. Faith. Is that how you would have described faith? What have you made faith and fear synonyms ever, I wonder? We don't often, because fear is such a a negative word to use normally. But what Mark is showing us here is that real faith in Jesus is not, it's not just a case of saying sorry for the wrong things you've done. It's not only repentance, although it would include that. Right faith in Jesus is absolute submission to him. It's absolute devotion to him. And I wonder, is that your faith in Jesus? Is that your Christianity? 
Is that what it means when you talk about your faith in Jesus? That you are absolutely committed to him. Because there's no one else you'd rather be committed to. Because you realize that he has absolute control over you. And if it's not, my response is not then to, to rebuke you. Look, you, you need stronger faith. My response is to encourage you. Look, if that's not your faith, you're missing out. Because those who have learned to fear him realize then that there is nothing else to fear. And in this way, you're carrying all those fears around with you. And only until you learn to fear him in this way, only until your faith becomes like the faith of this man, will you be freed from all those other fears that so often assault us. Once you learn to fear Jesus rightly, now let's think about the next half. Once you learn to fear Jesus rightly, there is nothing else to fear. Surely that was the very clear lesson in the Carmen of the Storm. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Jesus asks. Well, then the next two little accounts uh, add to that. They show how the fear of Jesus overcomes our other fears. And the next two accounts helpfully touch two of the most common fears that we each individually experience. One of those fears is what you might call the fear of rejection or the fear of other people. The fear of man, sometimes the Bible puts it as. It's that fear that uh, is the fear of being the fear of being the fear of being singled out and different from the crowd around you, the fear of ridicule, the fear of hatred, the fear of losing your friendships. It's this kind of fear that makes you anxious and sooty towards even that you love the most, your family, on the first day of school or, or the first day of a new job, because you're fearful about what others might think of you rather than appreciative of the love that you have around you. It's this type of fear that makes you do regrettable things in order to fit in with the crowd around you. Or it's the fear that prevents you speaking up to defend someone who you know is in the right, but many others think is wrong. Now for the bleeding woman, this fear of those around her has been overcome even before we read of her fear. It's been overcome, let's say, in verse 28. You see... If she had this fear, she would not have ventured into the crowd. She, with with the bleeding that she had, was an unclean woman. And so to go into the crowd, anybody that she touched would have become ceremonially unclean. Now to do that was to be to, to make yourself a social pariah, to make to make yourself hated by those around you. It's a bit like imagine if you went into work tomorrow with a flu. Okay? You can imagine how people would respond. Okay, and your nose is running and you're coughing your guts up and you're really weak and tired. Whoa, in the staff room, people are going to think, what, what on earth is this person doing? And they're not just going to be kind and caring and considerate and say, look, I think you better go home. They're going to say, you, you foolish and stupid and selfish person, get out of here. What are you doing carrying those symptoms around society? Don't you know there's a pandemic on? And in a similar way, that's how people might have reacted if they'd known that this woman in the crowd was bleeding as she was. What are you doing standing here around us? Yet she has overcome that fear of the crowd, the fear of what people might say. And she knows that if only I can get to Jesus and touch him, rather than me passing my uncleanness onto him, he will make me clean. He will heal me. And so she presses through the crowd and she sneaks behind people and she just manages to touch Jesus' coat. She fears Jesus in a right way. She knows that he is 
worth far more than the fear of rejection or humiliation that she might face in the crowd. But then Mark does tell us about her fear. Verse 32, Jesus, uh, well, verse 31, um, Jesus asked, who touched me? And Jesus kept looking round to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. Her fear only comes up once Jesus engages her. Now that's a curious thing. Jesus, the one with all knowledge, who was in that crowd, why couldn't he have drawn on that divine knowledge in order to understand for himself who was it that was in that crowd who touched him? Why couldn't he have solved this situation just by giving the woman a knowing glance, a quick thumbs up, a wink, and move on? Okay, And then the woman would have been able to go on her merry way and she would never have to have faced this fear that only comes about once Jesus singles her out. And now all the eyes in the crowd are looking at her. And she fears once again and she trembles with fear and she comes and bows before Jesus. Why did Jesus engage her? Was his purpose to rebuke her? Did he want to say, look, this is my power that you take? I don't appreciate it when people take my power from me without my knowing. Please ask in future. That's not the way the passage goes. Was it to, to because he genuinely didn't or couldn't know? Was it to inquire of her? Could he really not have drawn on his divine knowledge in order to understand who had touched him? I don't think that's the case. I think Jesus is asking a genuine question here. But I think he also could have drawn on his divine knowledge if he had so chosen. I think Jesus engages her in order to make her faith and fear of Christ, to make her faith public. Her faith becomes a public witness to others. Verse 34, Jesus says to the woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. And so her faith in Jesus becomes an example then to everybody else in the crowd. And especially, it becomes an example to Jairus and his followers with him. Who will, just a few verses later, have to be told, don't be afraid. Do not fear. Only believe. Only have faith. Same word. Yeah. So the woman's faith becomes a public witness to others. The faith in Jesus Christ has overcome her fear of rejection of the crowd and it encourages others to put a similar faith in Christ. But Jesus also uses it to validate her faith. There's a difference between verse 34 and verse 29, which is significant. You see, in verse 29, she touches Jesus and she is freed from her suffering. And in verse 34, when Jesus speaks to her, he says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. You are freed from your suffering. Same thing. Nothing's changed. Apart from this, in verse 34, he also says, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. You are freed from your suffering. And so by engaging her, Jesus is able to validate her faith and grant her peace that comes with that faith. She need not fear anymore because she's been granted peace from Jesus. And Mark is showing us in this little account that first, faith, this this fearful faith in Jesus Christ is a public thing. Especially for the first Christians reading Mark's gospel. 
to become a Christian was to put yourself in the firing line of persecution. It would cost them their standing in their communities. It would cost them their business. For some, it would even cost them their lives. And yet Mark is clear, look, you can't have this faith in a private way. Jesus is going to call your faith into a public setting. You're going to have to show others that you've been baptised into his name, that you belong to him, that you are part of his family. And so the question then lingers, is it really worth me following Jesus? If it's going to cost me so much, is it worth following? And perhaps you might be encouraged from this account in that case. From the moment you confess him, he receives you. Daughter, he says to her. She's not just received the acceptance of the crowd here. You see, the acceptance of the crowd is not really acceptance of, at all, is it? It's mainly just ignorance. When we're looking to be accepted by those around us, really we're looking to not be noticed, not to be picked on, not to be singled out, just to be allowed to go on our merry way as we are. Jesus doesn't just give her that. He gives her far more. He calls her daughter. He receives her into his family. You are my child. You're not just accepted, you're received. And who else would you rather be received by? The world? Or the man, Jesus Christ, the one with all power, the one who holds your life in his hand, the one who holds your eternal judgment, your eternal destiny in his control? Wouldn't you rather be accepted and received and welcomed by him? And so Mark is encouraging his readers, look, have no shame or fear in following Christ. There is no shame or fear. It's better to be welcomed by Jesus than to be ignored by the world. And that's not going to mean you will escape persecution. But knowing Jesus is better by far. Once you learn to fear Jesus, there is nothing else to fear from the world. And then finally, just briefly, there is the fear of death that is addressed here. That fear of death comes to us in all sorts of forms. Uncertainty, anxiety, fear of our own death. What will happen to me? What will it feel like? Will it hurt? Will I be able to remember anything? Where will I go? We might fear our own death. We might fear the death of others. Our children. Our spouse. Our friends. Our family. We might fear losing them. We might fear whatever might lead to death. The diagnosis, the illness, the difficulty. How would life be if we lost that person? How would life be if I had to endure such an illness? And so you can imagine something of the fear of Jairus in this account, who has asked Jesus to come and heal his daughter, and and on the way there, while they're dilly-dallying, faffing around with this old woman who's, who's touching Jesus when she shouldn't be, slowing down, and then he gets the news that your daughter has died. You can imagine the fear that's rising in his heart. And Jesus gives Jairus almost the same words as he said to his disciples. Don't be afraid. Just believe. There's no need to fear death if you have faith in me. Now that is not a promise from Jesus to every believer that you will not have to bury your own children. That is not a promise that you will not have to face death. In fact, in the next chapter we're going to hear about the death of John the Baptist. The one who Jesus described as... uh, the greatest man who walked the earth. We die. We will still face death. But for those who fear Jesus with a fearful faith, Jesus has the power to lead us even through 
death itself. And what we see here in Jesus raising the little girl is just a small taster of Jesus' power over death. A small taster of that moment when he will be consumed by death, swallowed up, buried in the grave, only then to show his victory over death and be resurrected and promise that same victory to all who believe in him with fearful faith. Even if it comes to facing death itself, fear in Jesus means that you have nothing to fear from death itself. He will lead you through it if it comes to that. This promise is that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And the right response, I hope this engages in you, is to lead you to faith in the Lord Jesus, to trust him, to absolutely depend upon him, to submit to him in every way you're able to. But I also know that there are many in the, in the congregation here who, who already are, who know him as their saviour, who do seek to fear him and submit to him as they can. And so in choosing a final hymn, I've chosen a hymn that rather than spurs us on in our faith, is rather a recognition of what that faith means to us. It means that throughout life's stormy difficulties, I can rest, I can be still, because I know that the wind and the waves that batter me here below are only the same waves that Jesus was able to still with his voice when he was here on earth. For those who fear him, there really is nothing else to fear. We'll remain seated for our final song.